Well, howdy. I'm Bob Reef. I'm the executive director of, at SDSI. SDSI, by the way, San Diego Sport Innovators. We are a business community all based on sport active or healthy lifestyle businesses. We're 130 companies strong. The organization creates commerce, jobs, and new companies through our amazing accelerator program. If you don't know about the accelerator, and if you are a young company, go to the website and have a look. We've now matriculated 130 new companies and have raised, helped raise $90 million for them. The units have an 85% success rate record over time and have some unique metrics as well. 51% of the companies are focused on basically on the digital side of sports and 51% are founded by females. Those are really unusual metrics. As I say, if you'd like to know more, go to the website. So welcome to the view from the bus. By the way, it's not that bus. It's my 1966 VW camper. During the pandemic, I traveled slowly up and down PCH, Pacific Coast Highway here in our little town of, of Cardiff and Encinitas and Solano Beach, and interviewed some of the most iconic founders of major brands in our coastal lifestyle industry. You can find these interviews wherever you get your podcasts or on our website. But in these post-pandemic times, I'm shifting the emphasis away from uh, historic and legendary founders to a much more current and scrappy set of founders, many who have founded or birthed their businesses in these amazingly fast-moving times. Their, their insights are not historic, they're immediate, they're relevant, and they're actionable today. In today's episode, we'll meet Isaac Howe. Isaac and his brother co-founded Orocase. If you are a serious biker, you already know who Orocase is and what their products are. Simply, they are the best way to ship your bike on any airline at a reasonable price and get them get your bike to its destination in one piece. So I wanted to, to introduce to you today Isaac. And I, Isaac, I suggest we just break this conversation into two parts, the first being what Orocase is and the second being about who Orocase is and the pretty amazing adventure that, that you're living, uh, giving birth to a brand in the midst of all the recent years of, of tumult. So howdy, Isaac, introduce yourselves to all the listeners. Yeah, hello. Thanks, Bob, for having me here today. I'm Isaac Howe. I'm the co-founder of Orucase, or one of the co-founders of Orucase. We're a cycling luggage and accessory brand that we founded in Vermont in 2012. And in 2016, moved to San Diego, where we've been you know, operating out of our small facility there now since then. Well, cool. I didn't realize you were a Vermonter. We can talk about that later. I spent, as you know, whatever, many years up there in the ski industry and with Merrill. But so t tell me a little bit more, what is an Orocase? So Orocase is a compact cycling bag that's meant for carrying a bicycle on an airplane in a more convenient and economical way. The <clears throat> If you don't fly with a bike, you might not know this, but airlines often charge hundreds of dollars each way to fly with a bike or to check a bike when traveling it to a destination. And so an order case is a bag that is fits within the restrictions and limitations set by the airlines to avoid any excess excess fees. And so our bags, our bags save our customers about the retail cost of the bag on each on each round trip flight. And since, since founding the company, we've saved our customers over $10 million in baggage fees. Oh, that's amazing. I, my, my perception of, of bike racing travelers is that they're also kind of economy driven, you know, very price sensitive. So that's an amazing stat, huh? 
Yeah, I mean, it, it's honestly, it's a really interesting market because our customers are both some of the most, you know, successful people. You know, cycling is not a, a cheap sport. It costs a lot of money. Bikes can be $10,000. And if you're flying places to go on vacation, you know, you're, you, you probably have some extra money. But, uh, but then, then simultaneously, it's also some of the most um, price sensitive people. I mean, cycling in the U.S. specifically is not, a, not a very lucrative sport. It's a, it's a fringe level pro sport. And so, you know, during my time as a pro cyclist, I made a very modest income and sometimes didn't have the cash to be able to pay to check the bike. And so, you know, our, our first customers were really some of the people that needed them to save the money the most. But then, you know, over time, we found that, you know, it's sort of universally shared among all people that just spending senselessly spending money and giving it to the airlines is just a waste. And so that became a more popular product because of that. Yeah, I, I can, I can definitely see the, the urge to beat the airlines out of the fee. Huh? That's part also part of the game for sure. But so let's back up though. So you're at UVM or you're in Vermont and how did this? Happen? Yeah. I mean, so I went to the University of Vermont. There, I my I studied biochemistry, and I was on the cycling team. And it was there where I met one of my co-founders, Colin Jaskowitz, who was a mechanical engineer from New Jersey. And and we were both, I'd say, you know, pretty pretty successful racers in on that team. I mean, UVM had an amazing team. Some somehow, if it's, it's I guess it's if you can ride your bike through the winter and survive through the winter in Vermont, <clears throat> then you're probably going to be hard enough, <clears throat> excuse me, to be able to compete well in races. But Colin and I became friends there. And we both got the opportunity after right upon graduating from college to become pro cyclists. And, and we just sort of traveled and trained together, you know, shared one bedroom apartments in Tucson in the winter and things like that to be able to make ends meet while while training, but since since one year traveling to Kansas City for collegiate nationals, we realized that there was a we had this big problem that we we had six people flying to a race and we had one minivan where we had to transport everybody from Kansas City to Lawrence, Kansas, and yet we had these enormous plastic bike cases with no way to strap them with the people with you know get to get the people in the car and also the bike cases. And it had been something stuck with us for years after, after that event. And we were looking, you know, and for years, we kept on trying to figure out a solution to be able to get around that problem. And that's really the early origins of the idea and the concept behind the company. When did, when did you make your first product? I assume you made them for yourselves. Yeah, well, Unfortunately, the, the product came, you know, out of, driven out of need. I mean, which is obviously, you know, not a, not a bad reason to start something, but it was 2012 and I was doing particularly well in the national ser series, pro, pro criterium series and team had mismanaged their funding and they weren't paying us and they weren't paying for us to go to races. And so I really had no money. I, I actually, I had $50 in my bank account. <clears throat> and so, and I needed to get, and I got the, I had, I had won the race the prior year. And so I got the race to pay for my airplane or my, my flight, my hotel, my car, my entrance fee. The only thing I needed to do was to get my bike onto the airplane. Uh, and I decided to use the last $50 in my name to go to Joanne Fabrics, buy fabric and foam, an old camp pad and some plywood, and just use my girlfriend's sewing machine to put together this makeshift box to try to avoid bike fees. And, uh, and, it, and it worked. I saved the money. I went to the race. I did reasonably well, even though it was at altitude. 
and and I secured a new contract for the next season with a better team. And people at the race, I was embarrassed by the product, but people were like, oh man, that's such a great idea. Can I buy that from you? And I realized that even though I trained six to eight hours a day, like most of the time I was just sitting around. So I started, the wheel started spinning in my head because every couple hundred bucks I might be able to earn made a huge impact on my livelihood. And so that was really the origins of the, of the brand. Financial desperation has been the origin of many brands, Isaac, not just Oregon, <laughs> I have to say. So, so what happened? I mean, you know, sewing one each in your girlfriend's garage with her sewing machine, that's the early step towards industrializing an idea. So how did you get out to California? Is that where it all started to happen or what happened? Uh, well, you know, it's actually worth noting that it didn't, it didn't start in a garage. It started on a futon in a one bedroom apartment. <laughs> and so, but but as, you know, as, as the order started to come in, you know, we moved to a bigger apartment with a loft and it was in a loft for a while, you know, and then it went into a shed and then, you know, life changes. And I actually came out to California because I was uh, chasing a girl that's now my wife, but it, my brand, my brand got to a one car garage in California and I had retired from pro cycling at that point after seven years, but I had realized that this, by that point it was you know, you know, really still in its infancy and the brand, but we were, we were doing a, a reasonable number of, of bike cases a week. I mean, I, I was committing 20 to 30 hours a week to sewing, but it still wasn't enough for me to make ends meet. And so I decided to pursue a, a career in my, you know, in, in utilizing my education and I got into medical sales. And after two years of sort of having the capital and the bank money that I made from my job in medical sales, I had been able to support and list, at least have a little bit of money in the back to be able to support Colin and my brother who was helping us in, in, in sewing and creating these bags. And, but it only took two years or three years of being in a real job before I realized that I, I couldn't stomach it. And I, I really just needed to jump off uh, the ledge into being a business owner and running my own business if I ever wanted it to be successful. And so by that point, it was 2019 and we had upgraded to a, excuse me, it was 2018 and we'd upgraded to a two car garage. And so we were really doing things pretty well at that point. But after 2018, we got into the SDSI program and, you know, we were, we were the sports the springboard program and we were, um, you know, doing what we thought was pretty successful. And, and it was that point when we, you know, got into our own facility in our own space. And, and since then we've been in the same space since. And I remember, well, let me walk you through it, but so you, you got out here, you got organized, started your own pretty serious production facility and, and so on, but you started to look for other sourcing too, during that time frame, if I remember right. Yeah. One of the challenges that we ran into is that, you know, like we're not trained, skilled sewers, you know, like I said, I'm a, I'm a biochemist and my co-founder is a mechanical engineer. I mean, we consider ourselves to be <clears throat> resourceful and do it ourselves and you know, one of our sort of, one of the things, uh, you know, po points I say we make about ourselves is that whatever it is, we can figure it out. But that doesn't necessarily always mean that sewing them yourself is the best method. And so for a while, when we, you know, we're, <clears throat> we're completely self-funded. And so, you know, for a while, when the bank accounts were pretty low, we, everything that we had to do was in just, was just in time. Like all we could really afford to do was purchase the materials for the next bag and then make it. And as we became slightly more successful, <clears throat> we were able to, you know, purchase for the next five bags and 10 bags. 
And, and so then our pricing went down and our margins got better, but we still had this problem with, with the efficiency in production. It took us like four hours to make each bag. And so with only having three people involved, like we really quickly ran out of hours in the day. And so we were sacrificing growing the business for the sake of building the bags. And we weren't able to work on marketing or figure out any of these things that we knew nothing about because we were so busy sewing the bags. It wasn't scalable. So we knew that we needed to find a manufacturing partner and our proximity to Mexico really helped the access to small and mid-sized manufacturers in Mexico was a really promising for us. And it took us about a year, but we found a factory that was just across the border that was really in a similar spot in their, in their growth. And they took us on. And at that point, we were able to order quantities of bags of like 10 to 20, which is something that is, you know, no, no other business would do that. But, but for them, they, mirror, they matched us exactly where we were at. And that allowed us to be able to focus on, you know, learning a lot of these skills that we, that we didn't have going into starting the business. You mean getting ready to, so you've got it scaled, you've figured out that certainly in this case, going, going as many of our members then going across the border to Mexico, where the, the labor rate, the hour labor rate is actually lower than in China. A lot of people don't realize that. It's also 15, 16 hours closer, if I remember right. Yeah. You can drive across the border in an hour and come back, right? Solve your problem that day. So that's pretty cool. So, you know, when you kind of passed on this, this manufacturing to your, your partner in Mexico, then you started to learn about all the marketing components of actually selling them. So you, I presume you've been selling kind of at that time and just in your network of, of bike aficionados and their friends and their friends. Yeah, word of mouth was definitely one of the largest marketing assets that we had early on. I mean, you could, you could geotag where an area would start to develop. Like you'd, we'd sell a bag to Portland and then they would get three more orders from Portland. And so, you know, so, so early on, that was a, a big part of how the word was getting spread about the business. But, you know, for, for me, one of the things that I really took on was more of the operations of the business. We were able to start to divide and conquer a little bit. Colin took on more of the marketing and in the web side of things. And I took more on the, the, or the operational sides in the, of the business. And one of the interesting things that, uh, about manufacturing in Mexico, that's different though, from China is that you oftentimes need to need to manage the cost of goods of the product. And so even though we had outsourced our manufacturing, I still needed to maintain all the business relationships with the suppliers in order to be able to facilitate the manufacturing. Yeah, that makes sense. So basically you got a, an org chart together based on your three skill sets, even though you guys have a, a biochem background, mechanical engineering background, et cetera. So you're, you're three scientists now who are trying to figure out how you're going to get organized and allocate the responsibilities. And obviously that worked. Pretty much. Yeah, it was, I mean, it, some of these pieces just sort of fell into place. I mean, we've had to move some things around here and there because of uh, for a variety of different reasons. I think largely some of these things worked out because like Colin for a long time was living in Colorado. And so, although he, you know, so, so the digital side of stuff was just something much more easy for him to be able to do at that time. Whereas for me being local, I could take all the deliveries of the products. And so some of these, some of these positions sort of just fell into place organically. There wasn't too much, um, you know, division because based on skill, I think since then, like there's obviously been a clear, you know, delineation because, and, you know, Colin is just amazing in, in marketing now. And, and so in, in taking in, in photography and things like that. And so clearly there's been a lot of development since then, but there wasn't really much 
much reason at the at that time. Well, that's interesting. Uh, you know, I think probably perhaps accidentally, but you avoided one of the pitfalls in in young companies. And looking back in our background, and you know, say you got four guys together and you sit down and go, okay, well, even though you're a biochemist, you're now going to do marketing. And so you you build this organization chart based around your immediate friends, not not around the the demands of the job itself. So I think I think you guys are fortunate that you found a natural path to functionality here and enabled you to go forward. And, and then it, as you approach the, the 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 fatal pandemic years, you actually were starting to get to scale and things are starting to work quite well, weren't they? Yeah, they were. And quickly, I'll note that it, it wasn't without its tribulations. You know, obviously. You know, like, you know, we had my brother involved in the company, which is, um, you know, I love him. He's the smartest one, but but that's not easy, you know, for anybody. And then also Colin and I are best friends and we lived with each other in college and we lived with each other after college for several years. And so so it took there was a number of years where ego got in the way of us making good decisions. I think that I think that SDSI and the pandemic, as well, I sounds like we're going to get into, was a big part of spring of bringing some of the the, the the perspective and the maturity that we need to be able to take ownership of our roles and have no ego be you know for for ego to not be a part of any of the process the decisions that we're making. Well, that's that's very interesting. I think that's one of the advantages, as you know, Bill Walton, our chairman at SDSI, often says, if you're if you have a destination mind, the the easiest way to get there is to ask somebody on the way back. And <laughs> I think when you get into these conversations, especially when you you know three really tight friends are starting a business, it's a good idea to get an out, outside perspective. But but your experience is not unique. I'm thinking back to an unnamed startup I was involved with, and we were sitting around having this conversation, and uh, somebody said, "Well, who's going to do finance?" And I raised my hand, and the other guy said, "Then we quit." <laughs> So. <laughs> <laughs> well, fortunately for me, everybody everybody put finance on my hands because they said, "Well, great if you handle finances, then we go bankrupt, then it's not our fault." Yeah. So, so I and I was I reluctantly took on that responsibility while we were still managing that. But uh, but yeah, like the the pandemic was a great a great opportunity and, and you know tragic obviously, but I, I mean more so for the distance that we had. You know, we had distance between us. The three of us were you know. We're, we're apart working remotely and for a large part of that. And it, and it, it gave us some of the, you know, healthy ways to re relieve frustrations and stress that may have ultimately bought and that we may have been bottling up before that, that I think really uh, helps, helped add a, a level of clarity to our decision-making process. Mm -hmm. So things were, things were sailing along then. And I mean, if you look about, look across the, the, the list of skills that, that you have to have, you have design, you have development, you have manufacturing. I guess prototyping before manufacturing, purchasing the goods, getting them into a warehouse, distributing them, marketing them. Those are the things that are your daily activities. And there are just three of you guys sharing those, those responsibilities. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was 2019 or 2019 was a breakthrough year for us. We, 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 were, we grew 93% over in 2019. And part of that was being, you know, part of that was also from developing some of the, you know, tangible skills that we learned through connections from SDSI, but also part of that was because of a development of a new product that we launched at Sea Otter, which is one of the largest cycling trade shows in the United States that, that gave us a bunch of press and it won some awards at the event. And that, and that really turned a lot of focus on the, in the travel space in the cycling tra bicycle travel space. Onto. And, and for us, that was a huge year too, because 
we wanted to at that we wanted to move our production to overseas not not entirely but some of it and yeah. and for for a number of reasons but also because of the improvements in, in cost and, and not needing to manage the cost of goods it just simplifies a lot of things but unfortunately it was about a month before the was it about yeah about a couple months before the pandemic hit where we received the first shipment, the first 40 foot container of product that we had ordered from overseas. And so right at the onset of the pandemic, it was a, it was a rapid shift from being having just in time manufacturing to now having, you know, probably for us about seven to eight months of inventory on hand that, that, uh, that didn't sell at all the moment the pandemic hit. Wow. Well, I, I remember those days pretty clearly too, from the, from the community, the business communities, point of view, I think we, uh, everybody, as I recall, panicked and we called our, our vendors overseas and said, Hey, cancel plan a, which was looking good. And let's institute plan B, which is, we're never going to buy anything ever again. And please don't ship us anything. Please don't call us. And then what, whatever it was approximately five or six weeks later, started noting, noting an increase in demand online. As retail uh, brick and mortar was shutting down, online was obviously picking up. I say obviously in retrospect, because when somebody asked me if anybody was experiencing early growth in online direct-to-consumer business in the first months of the pandemic, I said, of course not. But I quickly found out that I was wrong. And a lot of the members called the same manufacturers back and said, cancel plan B, which is don't do anything and let's reinstitute plan, plan A. Geez, sorry about that. So the, the, the long and short of that, excuse me for that. The long and short of that was that everybody was, was very quickly back in business and it began this, this horrible backlog of products and you know, late delivery of which we are benefiting right now as our categories way over inventory as we approach Christmas in, in Q1 of 23. But, but Isaac, so what happened? I mean, you had this a six month buildup of inventory and you had a sudden shutdown, it seemed like. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, the, so the first, the first purchase order was a, took on a, a tremendous amount of our cash on hand. You know, it was a huge, it was a huge step up for us. When early March comes in, we were hitting all of our, you know, the first few days, we were, you know, we were hitting all of our, we were, you know, above target for the year and we were really excited about the uptick that the springtime usually brings in our in our space and but then you know when the first cases came in the US and they shut down travel like it was crickets in hindsight we ended up not really selling any travel cases for about 8 months but um but that that left us sort of twiddling our thumbs and and realizing like holy smokes we have 2 months of cash on hand before we go out of business like what what are we going to do and so it was a very scary time for us we didn't we didn't we didn't have a clue what we were going to do well, so what did you do? <laughs> yeah, well, it was, so I, I, on one of the trips that I normally take, you know, weekly on a weekly or bi, bi-monthly basis to our facility in Tijuana, I was down there chatting with our partner, partner in, in, the, in the manufacturer there. And, and, and he had sort of, he had, he had known, he said, well, it, it looks like they're going to have to shut down our factory because they're going to shut down everything. Now all the workers are going to have to stay at home. He said the only exception that factories are going to have down here is for people making PPE. And, and so I was, you know, I was just like, all right, let's do that. Let's just make, let's just make masks, you know, like, and, and I was like, well, I don't know why, or I don't know what we'll do with them, but we're going to try and we'll figure it out. And I went back to our offices 
And we went to Google Images and printed off a, a pattern for a, a mask. And before the end of the day, that day we had had a PO for tens of thousands of masks to our manufacturer. And we had a truck being delivered with fabric to, to them. And it was just something that just happened right away. That evening I went home and, 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 and hired my wife to come up with a, a, a logo for a new company, a new LLC that we started called Breathe Cleanly. We didn't want to sell masks under the face of our Oro case because we, we were concerned about like looking looking poorly on our customers. We didn't, we didn't want to say, oh, we're trying to profit from the pandemic or anything like that. We were just working in a way to try to keep our, you know, keep paying our bills and keep paying our, our people. And so, so we started a second company and came up with advertisements and a website and everything before, before receiving the product 48 hours later. But what happened was actually pretty interesting. The introduction of Breathe Cleanly you know, it was successful. We, we sold, we sold a fair number of products, but, but we also had been selling them on our website or case, but we weren't advertising them or anything, but somehow some, some very influential people got wind of, of the, of the masks and that we had them and kind of like, you know, overnight, we just had hundreds of thousands of people coming to our website and in purchasing the masks because we were, our pivot was so quick that we were one of the first brands that could, you know, there was a lot of people that were making them on sewing machines in their houses and uh, in ones and twos, but, but we were one of the first brands that had the capacity to manufacture tens of thousands of masks. I and mean, we did it, we did it almost the, the day, the same, almost the same day that the, you know, that, 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 that people were being advised to wear masks. And, you know, my reasoning behind it largely was because I felt truly that we needed to save the PPE for the medical professionals. And so coming up with these fabric masks, although they weren't as good, it was something that might help. It was going to help. And, and also we had no expectations that it would be so well received, but for a period of about seven days, you know, we were making every day what we make in a month. And, and that was just really amazing. It, it was, it was incredible. It was such a incredible experience for us and how to operate a business that was selling thousands of products a day, but it was also just a, it, it, it forced everybody in the business to stop asking so many questions and to start acting on their gut. And what we found was that we, we made the right decisions and we worked really well together. And so for us, that was one of the, in hindsight, that was one of the reflections that we made was just like, wow, we should trust ourselves. Like we shouldn't second guess ourselves so much because in that moment, we did every single thing right that we needed to do. And we projected that we were going to have you know, a week or two where people were going to be interested in buying masks from us. We had to sell them for much more expensive than, you know, that, than what they ultimately end, ended up costing once big manufacturers got onto the scene. But, but for a period of time there, we, we were doing really well. And we took a, a significant amount of the funds that we made from selling masks and donated them by donated those funds by buying PPE from overseas and then donating it to facilities in need. But then um, also, we were able to secure enough enough cash to be able to keep our head above water until things until that rebound that you're talking about in the industry really you know came to play. Well, that's it's amazing. So I'm thinking about you know the the famous Nike phrase about just do it. Uh, you know, I, I've I've kidded you and your brother over the years about being thinkers, and, uh, and I remember suggesting did you ever think about mexico and you guys oh no it's being chat 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 right remember those days mm -hmm. i think that's a really valuable a really valuable lesson for uh 
for everybody who's listening, at some point you have to trust your judgment and, and proceed forward. I'm thinking, you know, Guy Kawasaki in his book, The Art of the Start says, you know, just launch your product. It, it's already good enough and your customers will help you fix it. But th that was his solution to overthinking and, and going slowly in the, in the process. So how did you get back to it, Isaac? I mean, how did you come back to Orocase? Well, so, to, you know, global travel was shut down for, you know, the better part of a year. So it, the bicycle case thing was pretty much dead in the water. But, uh, but people, as they started working from home more, you know, fitness, fitness took on a much higher priority in their day-to-day -day lives. I mean, the only times people would be, able, would be able to get outside was if they were exercising. And so cyclists started investing more in cycling. And we had been developing an accessory lineup. We had had a few accessories at that point. But, uh, but not a full lineup, but the demand for those products grew exponentially. And so we started investing our time more in leveraging our in-house production and our manufacturing in Mexico to produce accessories. And it was also just kind of a perfect scenario because the fact with, with a lot of other brands relying heavily on overseas manufacturing and the, the, the sort of complete shutdown in supply chain internationally, we were one of the only accessory brands that actually had inventory because we were ma manufacturing it locally. We were using American-made fabrics and we were manufacturing in San Diego or as well in Tijuana. And so just as quickly as the demand rose, we were able to respond in our production. And that helped us tremendously. I mean, in 2018 or in 2019, the our accessories were only about 15% of our sales, but then in 2020, they rose to 40% of our sales. And so it was a humongous growth for us, but, and so it was, so that's, that's basically how we spent the remainder of the pandemic was just building out our accessory lineup and responding to the demands of our customers. Mm -hmm. And your customers are basically a direct to consumer customer. Are you doing wholesale also? So we are now, you know, we, I took your advice. You told me we were actually on a bus. We were traveling, we were traveling to a facility in, in Mexico to get a, a tour. And, and you had said, well, I really, I really think that, you know, you should focus your business on for, for a number of reasons, but eventually, essentially it was to, to the effect of, you know, direct to consumer is going to be a good, is a good thing for where you're at. And, and I took that, we took that advice and we didn't really know why at the, at that time, but um, in hindsight, we realized that we didn't have the margins. We weren't doing the volume to have the margins to really be able to satisfy wholesalers. And, and if we had gone that route early on, there's no way that we would have been able to make any money. So it was good advice that we didn't understand until after the fact. We didn't understand fully until after the fact. Since then, you know, we've managed to increase our, our, our demand on the product or increase, increase our, our purchase orders and our margins have improved significantly over the past few years. And uh, wholesale is a small component. It's about 30% of our business. We want to remain or maintain being a, a principally direct business, but we see the value of of distribution, specifically in international. So we have a hard, a really hard time getting product internationally and the international distributors just really make access to that customer a lot easier. Yeah, I think distribution is a key thing, but just to revisit that, that conversation we had on the bus, Isaac, the the thing that has occurred to me in these modern times, a couple of things. One is in my day, you often would design product for a retailer. For instance, I've got a, a new widget and REI really sells widgets well, so I'm going to design this around what their needs are, not necessarily the consumer's needs. 
And, you know, getting into an REI or LL Bean was really fundamental in the early part of our business. And, and the main reason was their distribution was so broad. But, you know, the, the mechanics of selling the wholesale community involved purchasing early on your, with your money, importing the goods, keeping them in the warehouse for a period of time, shipping them to a retailer, and then waiting 90 days to be paid. I think one of the lessons that you must have learned along this this amazing ride that you guys have been on is the value of money. So having the hard to get money sitting in somewhere in this retail wholesale network for 90 days or 120 days or 180 days is just not efficient. So I, I well, think- there's, there's some- Go ahead. I'm sorry, I was gonna say that one of the really valuable pieces of advice that I got from a, a mentor at SDSI was that uh, to not listen to things as they are. So if everybody, if you have this expectation that, you know, you have to pay your people with a, with a, with a cash currency, if you don't have it, you're not going to be able to, you're not going to be able to get people to do that for you. All you, you know, you have to use what you have. And, and for me, that, uh, uh, that, that really hit home with, with a lot of these things. And so specifically in distribution, what I realized is that sure, the status quo might be that everybody's going to have net 90 terms, but we're not. And so in, in, if we're going to get into distribution and if we're going to work with these partners, if we don't have the ability to do that, then there's no way that we're going to be able to do that. And so we opened up our business to distribution, but we said, these are our terms. They, you have to pay cash on delivery or you have to have, you have a net 15 or net 30 terms because that's the only thing we could afford to do. And what happened was, is that Sure, we didn't necessarily get the immediate the distributors that we wanted to have immediately that we thought we needed to have, but we got the ones that we uh, that we could get, and we got the ones that we needed at the time. And those people came to us, and we felt, and since then I've always felt that by focusing on the direct to consumer business, if we establish the demand and with the customers, then the, the distributors are going to come to us rather than us going to them and trying to convince them that we're the right brand to carry. If we, if the demand is in the, in the market, then the distributors will come to us and they'll be much more willing to be able to make concessions to sit, to fit our needs. And, and we started to see that occurring in some spaces and it's been, yeah, it's been good. Well, Isaac, you know, in, in our conversation today, I think that is one of the most important lessons we can all learn. The traditional path to the marketplace was through a retailer and you were most definitely the tail on the dog. The retailers receiving all kinds of, let's say, options. People are trying to get them to, to buy this and buy that and resell it. But in the contemporary world today, it seems like to me one of the, the most basic changes among the younger entrepreneurs is go direct to consumer, just what you're saying, create awareness, and the good retailers and distributors will find you. And that, is, that means you are now the dog, not the tail. And it certainly changes the relationship. And, and now you have everybody sort of united behind one idea that, that this is our brand, we're really proud of it. And the, and the other guy saying, yes, thank you. I'm glad you selected me to, to sell it. That is a wonderful partnership. And that's what makes brick and mortar retail valuable. When you have that retailer wanting to help you, that, that's fundamental because he'll tell your story more accurately. Than if you're just one of the many, right? And so, yeah, well, and the other great thing that we've known too is that, like, one of the major critiques that we've had with it, like, you know, it, we've always wanted to create products that, you know, that were as innovative and as ground shaking as what we thought our first products were. And it was really hard for us to come out with something, as an example, like a saddlebag, something simple that, that isn't, isn't revolutionary. It was hard, it was hard to just make stuff for the sake of making stuff. 
But we've had these consistent critiques that about to, to speak to your point about people designing products for retail and not for the consumer. We've we've always noticed that like some of these most popular brands in the marketplace are made from junk materials or or they're not made with they're not made with the the user's needs in mind. They're made with the with the with the sellers, with the margin and how to have specifically like cheap fabrics or cheap construction. And so one thing that I've noticed as well is that it it's it's if at the same price point, when we bring products to, to the manufacturer or to, to retail, ours typically outcompete because it only takes physically holding one of our products to know just how durable it is and what separates it from, from some of the other, you know, other more traditional product options that are out there. You know, we are not making as much margin as some of these other brands, but, but we're able to, you know, we're, but we're thinking about the consumer because we're thinking about the consumer and our products. And, and, and when they're at, when they're at the bike shop, looking at that, looking at our bags, they can see that the attention to detail and the craftsmanship that we put into each of our products. Well, I, I think that's called authenticity. <laughs> you know? And so when you when you look across the spectrum of successful brands, I think at the at the one of the core elements, of course, is is the utility and authenticity of the product. You know, you want to buy it to last and especially in the bike community, very, very critical. So, you know, having the real deal makes a big difference. But I think one of the other things that that has come across in your marketing and your story is basically and, and especially demonstrated in your your pivot to to making masks to help people during the pandemic is the ethos of the brand is that it comes through to me as it very clearly that you guys are real. It's dedicated that you are dedicated to good product and you're not going to make something that's not good. It's differentiated by the product itself, not by price. You know, this is the best that we can offer you, and this is the best price we can offer you is, is often the correct price. And I think young people in particular now today, the younger consumer really gets behind brands they believe in. It's, it's important to be a brand these days. A, a, brand, a brand is, is a product or service that, that evokes a, a consumer response. And I know we've talked about this before, that in, in the marketplace, the, the opposite of brand love is not brand hate the opposite is indifference right so yeah put your product out and you talked about crickets nothing happens that's a problem so i mean to, to speak to that point i mean briefly i was just analyzing the results of a survey that we did on a product that that we just launched and of the of the several factors that people led to purchasing a product from us, the first one in this develop for this particular product was on design features, but the second one was the brand story, and so and it significantly higher than all the other three, four, five, six metrics that we had, you know, in that in that question. And so I think that's definitely true, and we see that with our customers. Well, you know, I believe did you come to the presentation at SDSI the other day by Cristobal from Silk Bags? Bags. Unfortunately, I missed that one, but yeah, I really, I, I hope it's recorded because I want to see it. Well, we, we need to record it. He's, he's given the presentation a couple of times, but his, his solution was very much the same thing that he, he wanted to, to get eyeballs on his brand and, and to create awareness around based on, in his case, a, a sense of humor. After all, he's making a, a sleeping bag that's with arms and legs, right? I mean. It's like a giant onesie. It's hard to understand until you go to the website and you see that, how excited people are and how many uses there are for it. So I think, you know, the, the idea of getting your story across is critical, really critical. 
And if it's not if it's not authentic, if it's over-marketed or hyped, it's instantly apparent. And I think you end up with the the opposite of brand love. You end up with indifference, which is a terminal experience. For well, that's that's been one of the challenges that we're facing now as we get older. I mean, you know, Colin and I retired from pro cycling in 2015. You know, it's just it, we're not we're not riding 30, 40 hours a week like we once were. So, and and as we get older, you know, our interests have broadened and it's caused a bit of a challenge for us, you know, with our brand, because although we have been in the past historically, you know, laser focused on cycling, you know, cycling is one part of, is part of, or is one of many sports that we do now. And we've, and one of the challenges we're facing now with our brand is how do we, how do we communicate and, and market to and advertise to our customers and pretend if, if, if in some ways we're pretending to be, you know, to be, you know, specifically and exclusively cyclists and living this lifestyle. And what we decided was that the smartest thing for us to do was just to start to change our story and to start to tell about where we are, where we are now in our journey through sports. And what we found is that so are our customers. We found that, you know, most of our customers are not only just cyclists. Other customers, they also like rock climbing. They also like hiking and they also like camping. And so as we move forward into 2023, a lot of our ambition or a lot of our, our interests are, are to start to tell that story. To start to tell about the fifty, this the seventy-five mile overnight trail run that Colin and I did in October, like that, that was something that our customers thought was really cool. We we made running packs that <clears throat> were overnight running packs that were like hybrid between an alpine alpine backpack and a trail running vest, and we went and did this gnarly run in the Sierras because we thought it was super cool. We weren't sure that it would be something that our cycling customers would care about, but it turns out that people thought it was also really cool, and so. For us moving forward, we realized that the best thing for us to do at Oracase is just to tell our story, even if even if that sometimes means changing changing from what we were before. I don't think that's changing. I think that's called evolving. You know, it, <laughs> yeah. it's a it's a natural state of things, and you know, it's one of the things about our, as you know, I think about our San Diego Sport Innovators community is basically we're all in this this San Diego lifestyle in some way. And it can be older people walking, it can be younger people running and swimming and all the many things that we do to stay healthy. And I, I believe that one of the outcomes, one of the positive outcomes of the pandemic is a self-awareness in terms of fitness and being healthy. So, you know, evolving towards those outdoor activities seems like a totally normal evolution of a brand. And I'm sure you're gonna be quite successful. I'm also sure that we could go on with this conversation for several hours as we often have it, you and I just over a cup of coffee. <laughs> so we should bring it to an end, but I, I wanna congratulate you and your brother and Colin. And I thank you very much for sharing tips for young people that might be listening to this and, and wondering, is this something I can do? You guys are really great examples of, of really deciding you're going to do something and experience the full journey. I must say, I don't think you've missed any of the <laughs> any of the bad steps, and you got all the good steps. So it's really been a great thing. Thank you for sharing your insights. Yeah, thank you. Thank you very much for having me. It was fun. Oracase.com, right? That's right. Oracase.com. Well, thanks very much, Isaac. See you soon. <laughs>